2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
3: I'm John Fort in for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Consumer confidence might have dropped this month, but our market guest isn't worried. She is betting on a strong consumer and a strong economy and on a group of stocks she says is positioned for gains because of that. She's going to join us with her picks. Plus, The first list is out. 10 drugs targeted for Medicare price negotiations. A former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, says there will be a lot of unintended consequences to this. He joins us ahead as we look at the potential impact on companies, patients, and investors. And on the heels of the latest Case Shiller housing report, Robert Shiller himself is here with the findings uh, with and what clues they may offer about where home prices are going to go from here. But we
1: begin with today's market. Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange. Bob. And John, what we care about these days, of course, is inflation and the jobs issues. And we got an important data point today. We had a weaker than expected jolt report for the month. Now, what this implies is the soft landing. It's supportive of the soft landing. Job growth, job availability slows down a little bit. That's a key component of the soft landing thesis. And the market responded very quickly to that. The S&P is in a little bit of an upswing in the last few days. We were, oh, what, 43.69 just a week or so ago. And look at us now, 44.85, a big rally there. The S&P 500 is above its 50-day moving average again for the first time since the middle of August. And that's true of the Dow and the Nasdaq composite. They both are also above their 50-day moving average. The Dow's being led up by a variety of stocks. uh, Goldman Sachs is leading, Apple, Nike, Caterpillar. Only laggard out there is really consumer state like Coca-Cola and uh, Procter & Gamble lagging as well. NASDAQ's been strong. We have Tesla up about 6%. Take a look at some of the big cap tech stocks uh, as well. Uh, Nice rally. Most tech opened flat to down. But NVIDIA is moving quickly. Intel's up. Microsoft is up. Uh, Amazon is on the upside. And again, big day uh, once we got that jolt report at 10 o'clock. Another sector that's moving today is most of the regional banks, not some of the uh, money center banks, but Comerica, PNC Financial, Zions, uh, all moving on the upside. Finally, we had a big piece of news in the middle of the day, a D.C. court ruling in favor of Grayscale uh, challenging that SEC decision to deny them the right to convert their Bitcoin uh, trust to an ETF. Uh, that's a big, big push for the potential for a Bitcoin ETF. Not happening immediately, but a big ruling in, f- in favor of the direction of approving a Bitcoin ETF. You can see Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which trades over the counter, by the way, up 17 percent, and some of the other sectors, uh, uh, crypto stocks, Marathon, Riot, and Coinbase, all up in the mid-teens. John, back to you.
3: All right. Bob Pasani, thank you. Now, my next guest says the market will continue to improve as recession fears recede. This will be good news for economically sensitive stocks, including tech. Joining me now is Marky Patel, senior portfolio manager for multi-asset solutions at Allspring Global Investments. Margie, risk appears to be on uh, this morning. I mean, Coinbase is up. Uh, you know, uh, C three AI is up six percent. Nvidia. Um, you say that perhaps the concerns about uh, rates and uh, the markets have been overdone?
4: Uh, yes, I think so. People have been really hoping for a recession because historically you would expect with such a big increase in short rates would be on the brink of one, but the economy keeps on chugging along. First and second quarter earnings were great. Third quarter looks pretty good. And you can see these economically sensitive sectors are moving. So clearly the market does not think we're on the brink of a recession. So that's really what's lifting those parts of the
3: market. How much more of a lift are we going to get, though, because we got PCE coming up and then we got the jobs report where I think wage data is going to be particularly in focus. And, you know, we've got United Auto Workers perhaps about to strike. So even if it looks like wages are under control for now, maybe not for long.
4: Well, I think those are all rather small factors influencing the market. But basically the economy is good. There's no sector that's really out of balance. And really, we've seen over the last year, the economy, consumers and business is rather insensitive to these huge increases in short term rates. The banks, yes, they have a little scuffle there, but the other parts of the economy really aren't bothered by these higher rates They're benefiting from higher savings rates. And so I don't think a small change in labor rate, something like that is going to change. Plus, really, when unemployment is at three and a half percent, it's really hard to get very negative about um, what's going to happen to r- wages. I think we'll be very firm and continue to move up modestly.
3: OK, let's get more granular so people can look at their portfolios. In this environment, you like semiconductors. Uh, how do you slice that? Because, I mean, NVIDIA, it, it, it's kind of almost living in a world all its own. Maybe you can put AMD in there as well, a couple others. But uh, what do you like about semiconductors?
4: Well, I've liked them for a long time uh, because they have one of the best-growing um, characteristics of any part of the economy, and they'll continue to, to benefit and maybe even accelerate with artificial intelligence, with continued move of data to the cloud. So we think they will continue to be one of the best-performing parts of the market. And even though it's true, a lot of the semis have been extremely volatile stocks. Many of them are up tremendously so far this year. But just because they're up isn't a reason to ditch them and not like them. We think they still have room to move up because
3: their earnings are going to move up. You also like industrials and some of the diagnostics within healthcare. care. Why is that?
4: Well, the industrials, because we think that having been a sector that's been sluggish for really decades, having share taken away, the U.S. industrial base has turned a quarter. Uh, Our industrial companies are very competitive. We've seen the move for nearshoring and reshoring. So we think companies are going to increase capital expenditures. That will help the industrial companies as they they continue to be part of this trend. And particularly with the strong economy, we think that the industrial, those that have high intellectual property, high technological component will do very well. Um, In the healthcare space, we like the tools and diagnostics, but honestly, looking at the healthcare space, Lots of value there, but we really don't think we're going to see big moves in that sector because they have government regulation problems with generics, problems with doing acquisitions, and a few bankruptcies. So we think they're great value, but you really have to wait. We don't think they're going to be the performers this year.
3: Okay, we're going to talk about some of that choppiness a little later on in the show. Margie Patel, uh, thanks for kicking that off for us from Allspring Global Investments. And for more investment ideas, be sure to tune into a special back-to-school edition of Mad Money with Jim Cramer. That is tonight. Um, The series continues all week long at 6 p.m. Eastern. Now, consumers pulled back more than expected in August on inflation concerns. But my next guest says there's one trend she's watching that suggests the consumer remains resilient and savvy. Joining me now is Katie Thomas, lead at uh, the Carney uh, Consumer Institute. Katie, what's that trend that you're seeing?
5: Well, we're just seeing consumers really embrace the optionality they have. So while the consumer picture is certainly a complex one across the board from increased inflation to increased wages and trying to make sense of it all, the consumer is exploring their options and they're ultimately still spending. They've really figured out where they want to spend, where they want to save, and how to make that work across the entire wallet, which is why we've seen retail sales continue to do well. Some thoughtfulness, maybe around we're able to spend in groceries so that they can buy a Taylor Swift ticket or even just buy the pumpkin spice latte for the first time this year.
3: But we, we've seen a lot of noise in these numbers. Best Buy, for example, this morning, appliances not doing well, smartphones not doing well. It was really Best Buy's attention to costs that uh, have allowed the stock to be rallying today uh, on, on their profitability. Uh, and that seems to be a bit of a trend. Uh, retailers, You know, paying more attention to the bottom line, not uh, having loose return policies, being very strict uh, about who gets to uh, watch your Netflix subscription, right? (laughs)
5: <laughs> yes, absolutely. So one thing we are seeing is is a lot of, whether it's, yes, strictness with subscription offerings from Netflix, Costco, some other retailers to tighter return policies. And that's where it's going to be an interesting interplay for consumers and where they actually choose to spend. So if you're a retailer that's tightened up your return policy for relatively obvious reasons, trying to reshape behaviors from ordering a lot and returning a lot, could still be very alienating to a core consumer base that is used to those kind of practices and those kinds of behaviors. So that's a great example of something that I would keep an eye on as you think about what which retailers and which manufacturers may do well.
3: Now, you say over half the consumers that you recently surveyed think their financial situation will get better moving forward. Square that for me with what we heard from Macy's and some others about the impact of uh, higher interest rates on uh, credit usage and the restricted availability of credit to a lot of consumers who are going to have to start paying student loans again before too long.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's where you just start to see the complexity of the picture and who exactly is impacted by what. So while, of course, we saw 50 percent of consumers are optimistic, we also did talk to them about how impacted they are buy interest rates. And only about a third of them said they felt like they were directly impacted. So it's always about kind of sectioning out these different consumers subsets and how they might be impacted. So is your now, sense, me,
3: are, oh, are those people who, who don't need to buy a house anytime soon, maybe who are sitting on a, a mortgage in the sub 4% range and uh, and who don't have overextended credit?
5: Yes, exactly. So you do see a set of consumers. When we talk to them about how financially stable they felt, a lot of consumers across income segments said they felt financially stable right now, which means there are many people that actually do know how to live within their means. And that's what they're doing at times like this. And they're really focused on what they deem to be necessities. And they're purchasing those items instead of, you know, purchasing things that are more discretionary.
3: Yeah, at the individual level it makes a lot of sense to save. But then at the macro level, we want the consumer to keep spending, which is always tough. Uh, Real quick, you say consumers aren't trading down, they're trading off. What's the difference?
5: Well, so I think we use this blanket term oftentimes, trading down. It usually insinuates that they're going to a cheaper product. But a lot of times when we talk to consumers directly, they tell us it's really about that price-value equation and where they feel like they're getting the best bang for their buck. It's not simply trading down to a cheaper item. If it does not deliver, they will go back to what they were buying before. So it's really about thinking about that entire equation and how they're spending across the wallet. 70% of consumers will save in one category to spend in another. So it's not a simple linear equation of every product, every category, consumers just looking at the next option down.
3: Yeah. They're still going to see Beyonce. They're still getting those tickets. They're not. Right. Right. Barbie,
5: (laughs) you name it. (laughs) Yeah.
3: They're still. All right. Katie Thomas. Thank you. Coming up, pricing pressures front and center with the first 10 drugs on deck for Medicare negotiations, which aren't really negotiations. Well, we got the list, the trade and the cost for caregivers next. Plus, home prices keep climbing with the latest Case-Shiller Index now only two basis points away from last summer's all-time high. But could the Fed put an end to those housing gains? We will ask the Index's co-founder, Professor Robert Schiller. And the exchange is back right after this.
0: NetCredit is here to say yes, because you're more than a credit score. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com partners. NetCredit. Credit to the people.
6: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
3: Welcome back. The Biden administration releasing the list of the first 10 prescription drugs it will target for Medicare price negotiations. It's the first time Medicare will be able to directly negotiate prices with pharma companies as part of the Inflation Reduction Act and intended to lower costly drug prices for 66 million older Americans enrolled in the program. But it doesn't come without criticism. And according to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, a lot of unintended consequences. He's here with that angle for the trades and the impact on the pharma space. We're joined by BMO's Evan Siegerman and CNBC's Sharon Epperson has a closer look at how this could impact the cost of caregiving. Um, Dr. Gottlieb, starting with you, we're sort of saying negotiation, but you know, it's kind of like that scene in Friday about whose bike it is. I don't know how much of a negotiation this really is, right? I mean, prices are coming down and that's gonna make people want to make other drugs.
7: Yeah, look, it's not not really a negotiation. They had to create the guise of negotiation to make this legally sustainable. And it's being challenged in court right now. I suspect that the prices that Medicare is going to administer here are going to be on par with probably what they extract in terms of discounts in the Veterans Administration. So it's going to be on par with VA pricing. They're due to send the manufacturers the first tranche of the sort of proposed prices. I suspect there'll be very little give and take on that and I'll arrive at the final price and announce those. There's going to be unintended consequences here. There's a lot of um, cliffs that are created by this law. There's a big delta between uh, how much exclusivity is afforded small molecule drugs, only nine years, versus biologics, 13 years under the law. So this is really a synthetic loss of exclusivity on these drugs once they come into these price uh, regulations. So that gap between the returns on small molecule drugs and biologics are driving a lot of manufacturers right now to look at developing biologics against certain targets and also rethinking going into indications that are predominantly Medicare indications. I suspect you won't see a lot of new business development looking at small molecule solutions for Alzheimer's, for example. You won't want to take a small molecule drug into a predominantly Medicare population. And that's unfortunate because certain biological targets can only be reached with small molecule drugs. Well, some
3: countries seem to already get these drugs for less than we pay for them here in the U.S. So why do we get the unintended consequences?
7: Look, the Medicare Part D program itself is quite competitive. If you look at the price concessions afforded to the government in the Part D program through the competitive bidding between different plans, a lot of times the discounts that are extracted are greater than the discounts that are extracted by European price setting authorities. We created the Medicare Part D program, and I was there when we did it back in the early 2000s, to cre- create a competitive competitively bid structure on the assumption that you would attract, you would um, extract savings, but you would also make sure that the capital got allocated to hopefully the, the best public, youth, public health endeavors. And so that if companies were chasing returns on capital, On the whole, um, the places with the best returns on capital would also be the places where you'd have the biggest public health impact. And I think by and large, that has worked. And that was the reason to create a competitively bid scheme. Now we're coming in with price controls. Uh, So we're uh, upending that scheme and we're saying the government can pick and choose winners more effectively. And I think that's going to cause a lot of misallocation in capital. How long before we see that? We're seeing it right now. You saw statements from the CEO of Novartis and Lilly that they've shelved certain programs. And certainly in the venture capital market, and I work for a venture capital firm, I see business plans. You're not seeing business plans come through, for example, for small molecule solutions for Alzheimer's. I haven't seen a business plan like that in, in years, really, at this point. I think you're going to see people pull back from markets where it's predominantly Medicare market, trying to be solved with a solution that's gonna be subject to earlier price regulation. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. there's certain things like intracellular targets and targets on protein pockets that you really can only attack with a small molecule drug. Final point here is that if more of the investment does shift towards large molecules, which is what's happening, those are harder to genericize and more expensive to administer. So ultimately, you're moving into drugs that are costlier in the long run and away from drugs that are cheaper like the small molecule pill-based drugs.
3: Let me rephrase that last question then. Not how long until you see it, but how long until the electorate feels it and perhaps has more of an opinion about it?
7: Yeah, look, probably within five years, I think it's hard to know what you what you don't have. So I think in Mm. some respects, the costs of this are hidden. But you're going to start to see capital come out of these markets, and then you're going to start to see the government step in and say we need to subsidize certain things. As soon as you see that, as soon as you see the government stepping in and say (laughs) we need to find ways to subsidize new treatments for Alzheimer's, that's an indication that investment capital have left those markets. All right. Dr. Scott Gottlieb.
3: Thank you. Now, let's move on to the impact on drugmaker stocks. Some of the biggest revenue makers uh, for B- Bristol-Myers, Squibb, Pfizer and Merck are on this list. So let's turn to Evan Siegerman, biopharma analyst at BMO Capital Markets. Evan, what, what's the impact? How long before we see it here? It looks like it's a it's a margin hit.
2: I think it's a margin hit, but really the list today that came out was not a huge surprise you know, things like Eliquis. we knew that was going to be on the list. And for what it's worth, that's going generic around 2027. I think to Dr. Gottlieb's point, it's the investment up front that's changing now. Drug companies are focused on biologics, front-loading R&D so that when they do launch, they can have the largest indication possible. In terms of a margin hit, I could see an increase in R&D up front for some cancer drugs. They're going to front-load that and pressuring margins near term.
3: So what are companies more likely to invest in, we can see what they're less likely to invest in, right, e- even technology-wise, as a result of um, just the possibility of this thing continuing to happen in the future?
2: Well, I see a lot more investment in biologics, which Dr. Gottlieb said, less investment in small-molecule oncology drugs. So I think in Bruvico, which is on the list. you know, I know some companies are rethinking how they pursue and develop small-molecule oncology assets which is really a shame because that's a great way to get cancer drugs to patients easily. They don't need to go to an infusion facility. So unfortunately things like that are likely to be deprioritized. De- in addition, weight loss drugs are probably going to be prioritized because Medicare does not cover things like Wegovy in weight loss.
3: Okay. Go more into that. We talk a lot about weight loss drugs lately. Of course. Um, you know, people are, people are fiending for them. So what's the impact here on weight loss drugs?
2: So, Remember, Medicare does not cover weight loss drugs at the moment. If they were to cover weight loss drugs, that would be a different story. But Wegovy presumably won't be up for negotiation unless they figure out a way to do it via the OZEMPIC negotiation that's expected in 2027. I expect that you could see a bifurcation between diabetes drugs and weight loss drugs. Lilly has a drug, retrotide, which could be developed exclusively in weight loss to kind of get around any potential negotiation.
3: Uh, You mentioned diabetes. What happens under the Inflation Reduction Act for insulin?
2: Insulin, I think, is capped at $35 per patient per month, which is great. I think that access to insulin is super important. I'm really talking about non-insulin products. I think the GLP-1 drugs or the um, small molecules like Jardians and Genuvia, Um, those will be negotiated. But I think access to insulin is super important, um, and that's a great part of the IRA.
3: What happens to the pipeline for innovation as a result of this? Types of companies, as Dr. Gottlieb was saying, that that might not be getting funded and maybe even types of companies that might have less competition now that are already in the pipeline.
2: Well, companies that are in the orphan disease space like Vertex are going to be a very interesting investment because they're not subject to negotiation at all. They're not really in the Medicare segment. Along those lines, if you are looking at a Medicare population, so 65-plus, a large molecule, biologic drugs are going to be far more interesting than, say, a small molecule. Small molecules are probably going to be relegated to non-Medicare population. Um, So think for younger folks to kind of prevent that nine-year clock that he's talking about.
3: All right. Evan Siegerman, uh, thanks for joining us with that perspective and we were talking about the cost of care about 48 million Americans are caring for someone over the age of 18 with many of them caring for an aging parent or relative and the value of that unpaid care is around 600 billion dollars a year according to AARP Sharon Epperson with me now with more on that Sharon
6: well, you know, this is troubling to a lot of caregivers because out-of-pocket costs for health-related and long-term care expenses are often far greater than expected. I met three siblings who are taking care of their mom at home, and we talked about the emotional and the financial strain of being family caregivers. After Ernestine Taylor had a stroke four years ago, her daughter stepped in to take care of her. She's so good to me. Daphne, a retired project manager and oldest sister, took the lead. It was all um, a learning process. Along with sisters Sheila and Debbie, who are also retired, the three work together to provide their 87-year-old mom around-the-clock care, creating spreadsheets, managing medications, tracking her progress, and navigating expenses.
4: We've been up and down, around and about, you know, buying things that Someone would suggest that you use this, this can help do this, so thousands of dollars.
6: They've paid out-of-pocket for medical equipment, transportation and supplies, not covered by Medicare or insurance, including a $5,000 hospital bed. Nursing home care costs over $100,000 a year, a home health aide, 60000 And when a family member provides the care, the average spending on caregiving activities is more than a quarter of their annual income. In the last year, if you could think of what's, what financial sacrifice might you have made? I'm sorry. It's been hard. It's so complicated. When you start trying to figure out even just in what we might, might, what she might be entitled to. We can just pay off our bills and stay afloat. That's a good thing, and that's what we're trying to do. Financial advisor Barry Glassman says planning ahead for long-term care can reduce some of the financial strain, but he understands few families
1: actually do it. It's tough because a person in their 80s doesn't really know when they may need help or what help they may need, if at all.
6: Family caregivers can get paid through some state Medicaid plans. They may also receive assistance if a loved one is a veteran. But you have to apply for these programs. We're trying to take care of our mom 24-7. There's just no way in the world um, that you have time to try and figure this all out. Piecing together finances for their mom's care has been overwhelming. But these sisters say family and faith offer the support they need on the most trying days. Now experts say it's important for family members to talk about the what ifs and discuss who will make health care and financial decisions if an elderly parent is unable to make those decisions themselves. Knowing who will take on those responsibilities can help alleviate at least some of the stress, John.
3: Sharon, this is so important because it affects just about everybody. It seems in a way like elder care is the new college, right? Absolutely. It's, it's this cost that maybe there's some assistance for it, Maybe people can plan and save for it, but maybe they can't. It affects retirement and your ability to pay for things. What about the people who aren't wealthy who who can't easily afford this the people in the middle what what are the steps they can take
6: well you know it is something that is a multi-generational problem that people are trying to figure out and so trying to find that financial assistance can be difficult there are state medicaid programs that can help if you're a veteran there are programs that can help there are also some neighborhood programs uh, community service programs that may be able to provide some assistance, maybe some respite care, so a family caregiver can have a break. But it really takes time It takes time to find what you can get assistance with and finding the tax breaks that you may qualify for, whether that is through your employer, through a health savings account or flexible spending account, or even if you're able to declare that parent as a dependent and take a medical expenses deduction or a dependent care credit. So there are ways to find that, but there are you got to piece it all together, and that kind of patchwork effect is something that can just be so overwhelming.
3: Well, we're a country with an aging population, uh, fewer young people coming in.
6: Yeah.
3: Maybe we need a five twenty nine for elder care.
6: Absolutely, twenty thirty four. There will be more people over the age of sixty five than there are under eighteen. So we need to address this.
3: Thanks for sounding the alarm, our sure. Sharon Epperson. Coming up, another day, another company rolling out a new AI feature, but could this one actually have a head start on monetizing artificial intelligence? The name and the strategy ahead on the exchange.
0: Sometimes it takes a different
5: approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu
6: slash accreditation.
8: Good afternoon, I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez is suspending his campaign for president. Suarez is the first primary candidate to drop out of the race. The decision comes less than a week after his campaign failed to qualify for the uh, Milwaukee primary debate on the GOP side. The Justice Department today announced the takedown of a malware platform used by cyber, cyber criminals. It's called QuackBot, and investigators say it deployed ransomware that caused hundreds of millions of dollars of damage with more than 700,000 victims around the world. Security researchers say they believe the hacking network originated in Russia. And a 127-year-old New York water main broke under Times Square, flooding subway stations and streets there. The state's Department of Environmental Protection said crews found the source of the leak in an hour and shut the water off. The three subway lines were suspended and the intersection closed to automobile traffic. John, back to you. Tyler, thank you. Coming up, home
3: prices are back to last summer's levels almost, but will further rate hikes derail their momentum? Yale professor Robert Schiller joins us with his take next. And before we head to break, let's get some show and tell, where we show you a chart to tell the story. Jam Smucker on track for its longest winning streak since June after posting an earnings beat and raising its profit guidance. Here's what CEO Mark Smucker told Squawk on the Street this morning.
7: We still consider that we are in an inflationary environment, although we have seen some relief on coffee. But we have been very focused on making sure that as if we do pass along inflation we do it in a very prudent way work with our retail customers and do so in a way that is cost justified our brands have been able to hold this pricing and demonstrate both dollar and
9: volume growth during this time period
3: Welcome back to The Exchange. The latest reading of the Case-Shiller Index, notable for tracking the price of the same home over time, showing a slight uptick in home prices of 0.7% in June from the previous as demand continues to outpace supply. But looking at a year-over-year basis, prices were flat, indicating housing might be nearing a bottom. But still, mortgage rates are sitting at multi-decade highs. The rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage currently at 7.29%. And housing supply is now at the near 25-year low. For more here, let's bring in the man behind the case, Schiller Index. Well, one of them, Robert Schiller, also a professor of economics at Yale University. Robert, what do you make of this? This is a weird time um, where inventory is so low, prices remaining high. Uh,
10: yeah, and with the, as you showed, the mortgage rate uh, has, has gone up a lot. Uh, and yet, people are uh, still pushing uh, in many cities, pushing prices up. Our, our overall one-year uh, estimated change was exactly zero percent. <laughs> so, like half the cities are going up and half are going down. So overall, nothing. In, in spite of news about the uh, mortgage rate, which is quite uh, uh, quite dramatic. Is it really
3: employment? and wages that you think are fueling this? Because, I mean, people are making more money, even though inflation is hitting a significant portion of the population. And as long as people are making money, they seem to be spending it on rent, on perhaps new mortgages, feeling decent about it. Is that that sort of last Jenga piece that's keeping this thing from falling down?
10: Maybe. Maybe. It's kind of a rejoicing that, uh, well, it looks like uh, COVID is behind us. <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I liken the, the mood maybe to the markets after uh, World War II. Uh, the war is over. <laughs> Let's celebrate. And people thought that there would be a huge demand for houses as we got back to normal. Well, about five years after rates were
3: this high, we got the financial crisis and and the mortgage crisis. Um, How much pressure builds up in a system like this? And and does it cause more volatility eventually in the housing market? Or does it not work that way uh, in relation to the macro?
10: Well, the old story is that of a speculative bubble. Prices start going up and then they're... uh, Become talked about uh, as uh, maybe it's crazy, uh, and uh, but people don't sell right away. <laughs> you get out. It's hard, especially with houses. It's a big deal to put your house on the market. So it goes longer than you'd think. Uh, and right now, people's expectations don't seem to be e- extremely high, but they're acting as if they're hanging in there and and sort of. A, uh, Well, maybe a bubble situation, maybe it's going down from here. Hmm. Are you
3: tracking at all the the impact of Airbnb and kind of the the secondary home rental market? Right now in New York, of course, there's a crackdown on that. There's probably a bunch of of housing inventory that's no longer rentable on that kind of platform. And maybe that causes some more inventory to come on the market when people decide, hey, I can't get cash flow out of this like I thought I could. I'm gonna put it up for sale. are you seeing that at all
10: across other markets? Well, I haven't been studying that, but I think you're absolutely right about Airbnb is part of the computer revolution. Uh, part of the, the, the dominant story right now is about Airbnb and uh, chat GPT and other innovations that have to do with the Internet. So we, we think that we're in a world which is changing. Not we, everyone, lots of people are thinking and at this point, it's, uh, the prices are holding. They, they haven't uh, fallen like they did uh, you know, home prices. They haven't fallen like they did after 2007. Uh, All right. But, uh,
3: <laughs> In a so world silly. that's changing, yeah, eventually that's going to change too. <laughs> Robert Schiller, yeah. we just don't know when. That's the important thing. Appreciate you being with us. Okay. Coming up, shares of this social media company popping today after announcing a new AI feature and a new way to make money. The name and the details next. Welcome back. Our mystery chart was Snap. Shares are higher today after the company announced a new AI feature and its plans to monetize it. Julia Borston joins me now with that story. Julia, Snap has a way of doing this.
0: Uh, Yeah, AI also gets people's attention. Snap announcing a new AI feature in a new way, it is trying to make money with AI. Snap Dreams, that's what they're calling a new tool that turns photos into AI-generated selfies. So, you can turn yourself into a mermaid or a renaissance princess. And then, of course, Snap encourages its users to share these AI-generated images with their friends. Now, perhaps most interesting, the first AI selfies are free, and then after that, it costs. 99 cents for another eight selfies. This follows Snap's $4 a month Snapchat Plus subscription service, which hit 4 million subscribers as of the end of June. All of this shows Snap's big push to diversify its revenue stream with both subscriptions and now one-off purchases as well. So the question is whether all this is enough to help mitigate concerns about the weak outlook for the second half of the year that Snap shared in its last earnings report. Snap stock had been down 20%, 22- 20% in the past two months before today's gains. It's now about 3.5%. Now, analysts are still wary. 73% have a hold on the stock. 12% have a sell. Only 15% have a buy. John?
3: Julie, this reminds me of a couple of things. One is when Apple introduced in-app purchase. And another, when some of the dating apps, Match, Bumble, etc., started you know, having these packages unlocked for, for certain features. I guess my question is whether there's enough volume on Snap to create the kind of network effects that would keep those purchases going and make them significant.
0: Well, look, there's a lot of volume on Snap when it comes to communication. I think that's one thing that's so interesting here is that for the most part, Snap has been monetizing around the entertainment. You send a message to a friend, you go watch some content on Snap that maybe is professionally generated. There you see some ads mixed in with it. Then you go back and respond to the message that your friend just sent back. So it was all about the entertainment and the advertising in between the communication with friends. What they're doing here, both with the subscription and now with this initiative, is trying to directly monetize. The communication itself. They want to make sure that they're making money, and they're giving you lots of tools and reasons for you to keep sending your friends selfies. If a, if a selfie in front of the restaurant you're at isn't interesting enough, they're going to let you send a selfie as a mermaid. So I think it's an interesting shift here, and it shows this interest in broader diversification away from advertising, which investors seem to think, at least today, is a good thing.
3: Julia, if I remember correctly, uh, last year Snap was one of the first companies to do a major headcount cut when they saw the slowdown in advertising uh, spend and revenue. Is your sense, analysts' sense, that they've sort of stabilized enough to have a platform on which to grow from here? Or is revenue still shaky enough that there could be more volatility ahead?
0: Well, I think the reason we saw the stock drop so much after the most recent earnings call was because I think investors and analysts had hoped that things were gonna continue on the upswing. We've certainly seen um, a lot of optimism out of Meta about their growth trajectory that's sent that, uh, sent that stock higher this year. And I think there was some concern about a wariness about the second half of the year. We've seen quite a turnaround from talk of a, what they called an advertising winter. Now it seems like it's much more stable than that, um, But I think it's still too, too soon to say whether or not snap is really going to be lagging in that department. Um, snap is much, much smaller than a meta is. And so far this year, at least, that hasn't helped them. Um, and and meta scale has really been a huge advantage. So we'll see what happens after this quarter. And we'll see if it's just as bad as they had warned or if they're really starting to turn things
3: around more. All right. We well, know you'll be watching it. Julia Borston, thank you. Speaking of the bigger players in AI, we've got a rare and exclusive interview with Google Cloud CEO Thomas Kurian, fresh off Google's Cloud Next event today in San Francisco. We're going to talk about the company's latest push into AI, a whole lot more. That's on Overtime with me and Morgan Brennan at 4 p.m. Eastern. Still ahead. Near-term options in PVH imply an 11% move in either direction after earnings. Hewlett-Packard hasn't missed earnings estimates in five years. And Amborella's management warned last quarter it doesn't see a swift end to its inventory correction. We will get the action, the story, and the trade on all three ahead of their results on earnings exchange. And that is next. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow near-session highs, with Verizon leading the way after getting an upgrade to buy at Citi. Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to the exchange. Tech, the consumer, and the tech consumer. So that's what we're watching in today's earnings exchange. We're looking ahead to reports from PVH, Hewlett Packard, and HPE, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, and Ambarella. Here with our trade is Jewel Financial founder Quint Tatro. Let's start with PVH, owner of brands like Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger. Shares taken a hit in the retail route last week, but analysts at UBS see a weakening consumer and higher promotions as a bigger risk to PVH than shrink. Uh, Quint, you're not touching it here, though. Why?
9: Yeah, this, this is danger signs. And, you know, anything's obviously possible surrounding an earnings announcement, especially with the pretty high implied volatility, but this looks like a value trap to me. I mean, when you look at this company from the fundamentals, it it doesn't look that that bad. I mean, it's selling seven times forward and, and looking to grow those earnings about 11%. In fact, it's trading below book value. But when you dive into the balance sheet over the last year, you can see that the company has significantly diminished its cash holding and significantly increased its inventories which is a big red flag when you're talking about fundamental analysis. So this one is just a no touch for me until I really see the business turnaround and the consumer turnaround and that inventory level starting to
3: drop considerably. I mean, I contrast this chart with Abercrombie. Is PVH just not as cool as Abercrombie? (laughs)
9: I, you know, I don't have style. It's been a very long time <laughs> since I was in the cool camp, so I, I, I
3: couldn't tell you. <laughs> yeah, well, my kids are not buying from PBH the, the, the right chart's now. So That's not as cool, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> that much we can see, for sure. All right, uh, <laughs> uh, next up, HP and its software. Well, it, it's uh, it's enterprise-centric uh, cousin, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise with servers and software. Shares uh, of both are Higher for the year with HPQ, that's the consumer side, PCs and printers, up nearly 18%. And while those shares are outperforming, Barclays expects PC demand to be in line or even below estimates in HP's third quarter, staying more pessimistic on a hardware in a tough macro environment, while it sees AI to be the strongest long-term revenue driver for HPE. Quint, you too are buying the enterprise and selling the PCs and printers?
9: Yeah, it goes back to the original strategy. I think why they separated these two out and the long-term view, you know, is the enterprise side is, is the place to be. And, and that's why that is, you, you know, the one that we would, we would slap with a buy rating. The legacy or the HPQ, the more, you know, computer-driven segment is, is a no touch for us. Uh, but when you dive in, the fundamentals, you know, top down look, look okay. I mean, they're relatively uh, the same earnings multiple. Growth rates aren't all that attractive, but the balance sheet is a huge differentiator for us. And uh, I mean, the enterprise side is is the darling balance sheet with the debt still on the HPQ side, uh, which is basically showing a negative book value. and And it's just not something that that we want to touch here on, on the HPQ side. I, I could see the enterprise side especially with the AI development that they're seeing, uh, you know, do do really well. So we'd be a buyer of the enterprise and and avoid the legacy side. Same time,
3: though, on the enterprise side, there's this shift toward accelerators, the likes of NVIDIA away from more CPU driven hardware. And HPE makes a lot of CPU driven hardware. So they're going to be able to weather that?
9: Yeah, that's a good point, John. I'm. I think they will, and I think like a lot of earnings reports, they're going to focus on the AI-driven side. We're going to probably hear that a lot in their earnings report. It's obviously a a buzzword now. Uh, But I do think you know, much like an IBM, a a legacy you you know uh, computers-driven service. Uh, business I, I think you're going to see an uptick there and and the opportunity is is there it's a it's a fundamental uh, healthy balance sheet with modest uh, earnings growth and and an attractive valuation so I think there's some upside there
3: all right finally chipmaker Ambarella shares are lower by about 10 percent in August as semiconductors more broadly took a hit but Morgan Stanley is staying bullish saying autonomous vehicles and generative AI are long-term growth drivers and while Ambarella not yet profitable Morgan sees generative revenue starting next year. Quint, is this a big chip player now?
9: Yes, and I want it to be. (laughs) Now in full disclosure, John, I'm gonna be a big bandwagon. I don't yet have a position. I'm not a big buy ahead of the big earnings, you know, report kind of guy, but this company has all the makings of an ancillary AI play that's not getting a lot of attention. I mean, they're the leading semiconductor manufacturer for uh, chips that go into the cameras that are going to help everything from the autonomous driving to, you know, smart infrastructure. They have no debt and they're trying to turn the corner of profitability. So this has all the makings. They just need one good quarter. I don't think you need to get ahead of it meaning, yes, you might miss that initial pop if if the quarter is you know now and all of a sudden they turn the quarter. I would suspect that they would have a big bump up. But I think once they do show their true path to profitability, the buzz surrounding this name, it's going to be a momentum stock and one that you uh, more than likely will want to jump aboard after the earnings
3: report. That is the challenge, though, uh, as we saw from Best Buy's Earnings this morning. The, the consumer not so much buying the devices right now. Uh, we've seen that from Qualcomm as well. A lot of the things that Amberalis Tech is going into. When does that AI shift from the data center into the consumer story? It might be a while. Quint Tetro of Jewel Financial. Thank you. And that's going to do it for the exchange.
2: You've been listening to the exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.